I'm going to go a little slower through this sermon than I normally do. Um, there's some theology here, and you've heard me mention before that it's very difficult as preachers to take a theological passage and make it so that new Christians or Christians that aren't as, uh, haven't had the opportunity to study as much to make it appeal to them as well as make it appeal to more mature or seasoned saints. And so um, this is one of those, those times and I want to make sure that everybody gets it and everybody's on the same page. So I'll go through it a little slower than I normally do. Uh, the title of the message is All Speech, All Knowledge. All Speech, All Knowledge. And as Pastor Scott read, we're, we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. And if you would, please open your Bibles. Make sure you have a Bible, whether it be paper or electronic, uh, to those verses because we are, you'll be lost if you don't refer to the verses along uh, with me. So we're going to pick up beginning with verses 2 and 3 of First Corinthians 1. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there at the end of verse 3. Now, if you remember, last week I said that in this context that I just read, sanctified means to be set apart to live a holy life, okay? To be set apart to live a holy life. A saint, quote-unquote saint, that Paul speaks of here in these verses, or saints, plural, are believers. That's how we're going to define them here. Saints are believers. As a side note, nowhere in Scripture is the Roman Catholic doctrine or even the notion of that doctrine uh, supported whereby it is believed that there are certain people who can be named saints by the church because they outperform common everyday believers. You with me? As a matter of fact, it wasn't until uh, the year 993 that the first saint was formally canonized by a pope. It was uh, Pope um, John the 15th, and that saint's name was Ulrich. Uh, he was the Bishop of Osberg, and he died in the year 973. Praying to saints, okay, there's the canonization or the naming of a saint. The church, Roman Catholic Church will recognize, and the Eastern Orthodox Church does this also. Um, They're the only two faith traditions, Christian faith traditions that do this name saints, but um, the canonization of a saint in their eyes is different from 
but not excluded to uh, praying to those saints. So it's interesting that um, the first canonized saint, like I said, was 10th century, but the first recorded words that we have whereby we pray to a saint is in the 4th century, much, much earlier. Neither the canonization of saints or the prayers to saints, as I said, are scriptural. You'll, you'll see um, Roman Catholics will, in, in an apologetic, defensive manner, will point to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, uh, to support their doctrine. But if you read Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, uh, you'll see that the context is not prayers to canonized saints, but instead they are prayers of the saints, i.e. those believers on earth who are offering petitions and prayers to the Lord. That is what's being spoken of there. The other scripture that they will use, by the way, is in First Maccabees, which is a book in the Catholic Bible, but not in the Protestant canon. And that verse also, if you look it up, you'll see is completely out of context. So, as I said, saints in our text are everyday Christians. That's how the Bible defines them. Paul defines them. That's how we, we will define them. Now, as you can see in verse 2, if you want to look there, Verse 2 of our text, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, We have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called by God, which means that we, in turn, Paul says, are able to call upon God. Because God has called us, we can call upon Him. Now, in light of us, having the privilege of actually being able to call upon God in prayer. And in light of the fact that Scripture in numerous places tells us that we can directly petition the Lord in prayer, even if you could pray to exemplary canonized saints in heaven like the Roman Catholic Church says you can, why would you want to do so? when the very God of the universe who has created you has not only invited you to call upon him directly, but he has commanded you to commune with him directly. I think I told the story in here one time, long time ago, of my uncle um, who used to always mention in passing that he was praying to St. Anthony for something that he had lost, various things over the years that he had lost, because St. Anthony in the Catholic Church is the saint of things lost. <laughs> if, you get, if you lose something, you're supposed to pray to St. Anthony. And I remember um, one time he said this uh, in the company of, of myself and my brother-in-law, and my brother-in-law looked at him and just said, um, why don't you just pray to God, pray to Jesus 
for you to find such and such and just bypass St. Anthony. But people don't think that way. They just pretty much do whatever, you know, they've been told. Anyway, so not only is there no biblical precedent for such things as pranked saints, but there is also um, virtually no common or logical sense in doing so. Um, so let me say this. The implication, if you really think it through, the implication is, you know, God's either too busy or he's too far removed from my life to hear my petition. I got to pray to somebody else and they got to take it to him. That's, that's ludicrous too, if you, if you just think it through. Anyway, now the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us as the model for prayer is a very convincing model. And it begins with, not our saints or our Canaanites, it begins with our Father, um, not our communion of saints. Okay, moving on, moving on. I won't beat that horse anymore. Paul says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. What is it? Short definition. It's God's freely given, unmerited favor. But of equal importance, it's the beachhead of Paul's gospel. It is the foundation, the cornerstone of Paul's gospel. And indeed, to this life of faith, that you and I live, right? More on that later. Then Paul says, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got grace and we've got peace, both in verse three, which completes Paul's very common greeting or salutation to the Corinthians. Um, I say common, very common, because we see the same greeting, grace and peace, he greets them with. Uh, we see it in 2 Corinthians, we see it in Galatians, we see it in um, First and Second Thessalonians, uh, Ephesus, Colossians, and so on and so forth. This is how Paul greets people when he writes to them, grace and peace unto you. Now, Follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 4 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 1, 1. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. In, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end 
blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's remarkable here isn't the fact that Paul thanks God in this text, in his letter to the the Corinthians. What is remarkable is that Paul thanks God, listen, very carefully, Paul thanks God for the very things in the church that the Corinthians are abusing and causing him to write about in the first place, which are their spiritual gifts that he mentions in verses 5 and 7. It's very important that we get that. Okay? Paul thanks God for the very things in the Corinthian church that they're abusing and causing problems with. Now, some scholars have thought that Paul was actually being a bit snarky here in in displaying some sarcasm. I don't see that here. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. If one reads this letter carefully, and especially this chapter, they'll see that Paul recognizes that the problem with the Corinthians does not lie in their gifts, but instead in the attitude toward their gifts or the attitude toward using their gifts. Because the gifts themselves, folks, come from God. That's the reason. The gifts themselves come from God. Paul thanks God in these verses that we just read. He thanks God for those gifts. But we will see Paul condemn the abuse of those same gifts that he has just thank God for later in the letter, okay? What can we learn from the Apostle Paul in this regard? Well, we can learn that Paul's character was such that he understood full well that even though he needed to correct the Corinthians, he nonetheless never ceases to be thankful to God for the Corinthians. One more time. Even though he needed to correct the Corinthians, he nonetheless never ceases to be thankful to God for the Corinthians. Paul still recognizes that it is Right, it is right to delight in God's work in the lives of others, even when their Christianity needs some serious adjustments. You with me? This approach, in my opinion, shows plainly that Paul was aware of God's mercy in his own life and He knew that God had redeemed him also 
solely by grace alone. Just like the Corinthians. Paul knew he wasn't any better than them. And we need to keep this in mind when God places us in the lives of either new Christians or perhaps immature Christians. We would do well to remember that at one time we were just like them. And when we were, if you think back to that time, someone much more mature in the faith exercised patience with us and most likely did so on multiple occasions. In my case, it would be multiple years Mm -hmm. that they were patient with me. We need to be sensitive to such things and we need to remind ourselves of the fact that some Christians mature a little slower than others and some require much more patience than others. We also need to keep in mind that even though God gives some people great gifts and does so solely by his grace, some Christians, the ones who are recipients of those great gifts, may need to be reminded at times, I know I have, that they had nothing to do with them. I say that because many times people who have been given gifts like preaching and teaching, for example, have a tendency to become arrogant or even boastful regarding those gifts. I know at times in my life, I have. That's when we should gently and lovingly remind them that those are unmerited gifts that they've been given. Unmerited, just like all of the other gifts that God gives us. Why? So that you, the recipient, can't boast. Because this is all about God's glory, not our glory. This is what the Corinthians were doing. They were boasting in their gifts and abusing them as if they had something to do with them. When in reality, they had nothing to do with them. They were 100% God's doing in their life and in the Corinthian church. We must also remember that these gifts, remember last week's title, sermon title, uh, In Christ, we must also remember that these gifts were given to them in Christ Jesus. Remember we saw Christ's name mentioned 15 times in 17 verses. Paul continues that theme. Uh, I would go as far as to call it not a theme, but doctrine 
real, reality. Okay, he continues that throughout the entire First uh, and Second Corinthians. Now, God's grace flows to those who are a part of the in Christ community. Put that in quotes in your mind. The in Christ community. To be in Christ is to be part of the community that belongs to Christ and recognizes his lordship over everything. Not just your gifts. Everything. Now why am I using the word community? I'm doing so because all the pronouns that Paul uses here are plural. They're not individual or personal. In other words, we are all in Christ. All in Christian community. We all make up the body of Christ. Remember uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Paul talks about us being individual members of the same body. Or individual members of one another. In verses uh, 25 and 26 of that chapter, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that there should be no division in the body of Christ and when one suffers, we all suffer. When one member is honored, we all rejoice. I've been in situations where I've seen people in the body of Christ suffer and I've seen other uh, quote-unquote Christians kick them in the head while they're down. And not only that, but one member uh, is honored in, in the church, and instead of the other members rejoicing, they become jealous or covetous. Back to the text. Now, when Paul gets specific in verse 5, look at verse 5, 1 Corinthians 1. He says that in everything you were enriched in him, that's Christ, in all speech and all knowledge, title of the sermon, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read the, those three verses one more time, because this is where we're going to get a little, a little bit uh, theological. Verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. You know that the New Testament obviously was originally written in Greek and Aramaic, okay? And this is one of those situations where the Greek helps a lot. Um, speech and knowledge. Logos and gnosis, okay? Speech or utterance. If you're taking notes, put the word utterance in your notes, um, Logos is the word or speech or utterance could be translated in various ways depending on where it's at, where it's used. And then gnosis, Gnosticism, okay, higher knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge in this instance, okay. 
Now, logos, we're going to define as me. Uh, um, we're going to define it as a word, a statement, or speech or utterance. Okay, and gnosis, we're going to define as just simply knowing or knowledge. Paul uses these terms in First and Second Corinthians more than he uses them in any other letter he's written, okay? The context of their usage seems to suggest why Paul was prone to use them here and elsewhere. I'm sorry, here and not elsewhere, okay? For example, when Paul um, uses the word speech or logos here in Today's text, verse 5, okay? He is most likely referring to the gifts. Charisma is the Greek word there. He's most likely referring to the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. This is very important. Here's a guy that's writing a letter, and in the first chapter, he's using words that are going to have meaning in the 12th chapter. That's why we're studying this. So that when we get to the 12th chapter, we could tie this all together, okay? So, he's using the word logos, speech, verse 5, and he's referring to gifts, which are charisma, charismatic. That's where that term comes from, okay? Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, Okay, the, this word, logos, pertains to the gift of knowledge, uh, the gift of wisdom, tongues, and prophecy. That's what it's interpreted as, okay? Knowledge, wisdom, tongues, prophecy. That word, logos, can be used and is used to describe gifts <clears throat> that are of an utterance nature, okay? And gnosis, or knowledge, in Paul's mind, also verse 5, most likely refers to the charisma or the gifts listed in, again, chapters 12, 13, and 14, to be exact, where a person in the body of Christ may be given... The word of wisdom, a word of wisdom, okay, logos, or may be given a word of knowledge, gnosis. You with me so far? Okay. Through the same spirit, okay, and to another person. The word of knowledge, gnosis, again, according to the same spirit, may be in those other chapters, the gift of prophecy, or the gift of knowledge. So what Paul is basically doing here, what I want you to see right out of the gate, Paul is thanking God, verse 4, for the gifts he, God, has bestowed upon the Corinthians in Christ Jesus, and he, Paul, in verse 5, is 
being much more specific by naming the types of gifts he has in mind, those that are used via speech, utterance, logos, and that pertain to knowledge from God, exemplified in the other gifts, knowledge, wisdom, tongues, prophecy, okay, gnosis. One more time, okay? It's important that we get this. So what Paul's basically doing is thanking God, verse 4, for the gifts that God the Father has bestowed upon the Corinthians in Christ. And he, Paul, in verse 5, is being much more specific by naming the types of gifts he has in mind. Those, those that he uses are uh, Greek words that pertain to gifts that would um, be about speech or utterance, okay, logos, and that pertain not only to speech but to knowledge from God, okay, as evidenced in these other gifts, knowledge, wisdom, tongues, prophecy. Now, obviously, um, in the mind of Paul, in the mind of the Corinthians, um, logos and gnosis both can be used when we talk about uh, Gifts like tongues and prophecy. And prophecy and tongues can be considered speech, right? Exercising speech. But at the same time, if you're, if you're giving a word of prophecy to a church, the Corinthians are, then not only are they using speech, but they're also getting the gnosis, the knowledge from the Holy Spirit, from, from God, okay? That's what I want you to see and I believe, and so do the commentators that I read, that this is why Paul uses these words in this order, in this early on, in this chapter. Now, over in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, the effects of those gifts. But the same God who works all things in all purposes. In other words, it doesn't matter if you think that your gift is a bigger deal than so-and-so's gift sitting next to you. God uses them all and he works them all according to his purpose for the betterment of the entire church. And Paul says... But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for common good. So God manifests a gift in the lives of, a Corinth, of Corinthian believers for a common benefit, common edification of that gift through the Holy Spirit. That's verses 4 through 9. Um. So, Paul is thankful for the gifts. He recognizes that they're from God and that they are for the good of the body of Christ and the abuse of those gifts by the Corinthians is something Paul will eventually address but not just yet in these opening verses of chapter 1. So basically, folks, we're just touching on where we're going 
And we're touching on where we're going to end up in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Now, Paul says that in verse 5 of our text, 1 Corinthians 1, that in everything, he says to the Corinthians, you were enriched in him. And then he gets specific. He says, in all speech and all knowledge. He's referring to those gifts. Every commentator that I read, every scholar that I read says that. That Paul is referring, when he says all speech and knowledge, he's referring to logos and gnosis. He's referring to gifts that pertain to speech and utterance uh, and gifts that pertain to God bestowing knowledge upon someone uh, through a gift to edify the church. He says, even as, this is verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, that's the context, gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, author and finisher of your faith, okay? He that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Not going to blot your name out of the book of life, right? Okay, confirm you to the end, blameless, you're sanctified, past tense, no sin. He, he looks at you, sees no sin, sees Christ's righteousness imputed to you. He's going to see you through on that day, blameless, verse 9. God is faithful. Well, let me, let me back up. Verse 8. I forgot. I want to mention this. Okay. When he says day of our Lord, he's talking about the second coming. Okay. 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right? So, in verse 5, as we just saw, the Corinthians have these spiritual gifts pertaining to speech and knowledge from God the Father in and through Christ his Son. And verse 6 suggests that God himself confirmed Paul's witness to Christ among the Corinthians by seeing to it that they lacked no spiritual gifts, which is exactly what verse 7 goes on to confirm, I, God, wouldn't have given them the gospel or the spiritual gifts if they weren't legit in my eyes. In other words, even though the Corinthians were abusing these gifts, God still gave them the gifts. Paul recognizes that God gave them the gifts. Paul thanks God for giving them the gifts. And the fact that they were abusing them still means that God is going to bring them through all of this blameless on that day. God's in control. Even when they abuse the gifts, he's going he's to see it through. God's going to see it through. Now, you see the word testimony in verse 6. The word testimony in verse 6 refers to the gospel. Paul uses the word testimony elsewhere to refer to the gospel. 
Scripture interprets Scripture. He uses it, if you're taking notes, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. He uses it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And he uses it in 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Now, let's just look. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of logos, of speech, or of wisdom, gnosis, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He's talking about the gospel there. When he comes, let me back up. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 is the second scripture where Paul uses testimony to mean gospel. When he, when he comes, meaning Jesus, okay, to be glorified in his saints on that day. There we go with that day again. And to be marveled at among all who have believed that's us, for our testimony to you was believed. 2 Thessalonians 1.10. In other words, our testimony of the gospel, if you read the whole chapter, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but the testimony of the gospel not only was believed among you, but God used it to see you through to the end, and God's name was glorified in his saints, or will be glorified in his saints on that day, on that great day, okay? Now I'm going to read one more, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, beginning in verse 8, 2 Timothy 1. He, he's talking to a timid, timid Timothy, Paul is, and he says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? From when you believed? No, from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher. So, in preaching the gospel in Corinth, Paul bore witness to the good news, the testimony about Christ. Especially his death and his resurrection and there's a whole slew of, I'm not going to give you all the cross-references, 
because there's just too many. But what I want you to see is in preaching the gospel, Paul preaching the gospel in Corinth and bearing that testimony of the good news, okay? Just like he did with Timothy and just like he did with the Thessalonians, okay? And he does so in the context of Christ's death and resurrection. By doing all of that, God himself, okay, guaranteed the truth of the message by enriching them with every kind of spiritual gift. The testimony, the gospel that Paul is witnessing to is enriched through the gifts of the Corinthians, through the use of the gifts in Corinth, in the Corinthian church. Does everybody see that? Okay. God not only guarantees the truth of the message, but according to verses 8 and 9 of our text, if you look at them, okay, he confirms the Corinthians as well as you and me to the end, Paul says in verse 8, blameless until the day of our Lord. How do we know that? Verse 9, because God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Folks, not, not only does God see the Corinthians through despite them abusing their gifts. But he's going to bring you and I through. He's going to bring us through, even though we screw up. Okay? That's my point. And I think that's Paul's point also. Now, when Paul says that... Um, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's verse 9 of our text, okay? I want you to see not only what I just beat to death, which is the faithful part, but I also want you to see the fellowship part. We are called to fellowship with Christ. That means hanging out with Christ communing with him, talking to him, being cognizant of him in us, in Christ. It means always being or always having a mindset that we, because of what Christ did on that cross, because, because God the Father looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness, he sees us cleansed in Christ's blood, because of that, we have fellowship with Jesus. What could be more awesome than that? You not only have fellowship with Christ, but God the Father through Christ is going to make sure you continue to have fellowship even though you screw up the gifts that he's given you at times. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. All right, um, next, week, next week won't be quite as much jumping around, but um, if anybody has any questions about what we went over this morning, 
just uh, come and beat my ear after the service. Let's pray.